Welcome to the Lost Debate, a show for political eclectics. I'm Ravi Gupta, and today we're welcoming Tim Alberta, who's a staff writer for The Atlantic and the former chief political correspondent for Politico. He's written for dozens of other publications, including The Wall Street Journal, Sports Illustrated, Vanity Fair, and he's the author of the amazing New York Times bestseller book, American Carnage, on the front lines of the Republican Civil War and the rise of President Trump. He co-moderated the final Democratic presidential debate in 2019. But the reason why we are welcoming him today is because he wrote this new book called The Kingdom, The Power, and The Glory, American Evangelism in the Age of Extremism. It's all about the evangelical church in the United States. Tim, welcome to the podcast. Ravi, thanks for having me, man. I'm excited to be here. Your book was tremendous. And I think a good place to start is where you start, which is the date of July 29th, 2019. Why is that date important? Yeah, it's the day my dad died. And I'm a pastor's kid. I I grew up in the evangelical church. My dad was a a pretty amazing guy, fascinating character. He actually uh, was an atheist who was a hotshot New York banker into his late 20s, and then suddenly had a pretty dramatic conversion experience and was born again, and not only was born again, but felt called to the ministry. And so he um, left his whole life behind, whole world behind, and started preaching, went to seminary, and and then uh, eventually I came along. And so that's the world I grew up in, in the evangelical church, in a small, conservative, white Republican town, small, conservative, white Republican church. But then it got bigger over the years. And as the church grew, and as I grew, my faith journey was progressing. I actually felt closer and closer to Jesus the older I got, but I was also simultaneously becoming more and more disillusioned with the church itself and with with institutional Christianity, I guess. And so then my dad dies, and it was already the worst day of my life because he died very abruptly. And uh, yeah, and I, you know, I wasn't there. I was in Washington, and uh, I wasn't there. Uh, but uh, then I came home for the funeral and things got even worse as, as I write about in the book. Yeah. So you, you go to the service and I mean, this is hard to, to imagine, but it's your profession, which we could have a whole hour plus conversation as to how somebody as devout as you decided to cover politics, <laughs> which is, I'm sure, <laughs> you know, based on what you write about your dad probably had a lot of questions about that too. It's either the perfect place for somebody with your background or oil and water, but you're at the memorial service and you can't escape the politics, right? Like people are coming up to you and saying things that at least to my ears sound wildly inappropriate for the setting. Yeah. Wildly inappropriate is one way to put it. Yeah. I mean, look, my dad is laid out in a casket and there's people pouring into the sanctuary for the viewing, for the visitation. And because the timing of it was weird. So I had just published my first book, American Carnage, which was, you know, about Trump's takeover of the party. And it was also an unsparing analysis of Trump himself. I was very critical of Trump. I'm I'm still very critical of Trump. And that really put me in the crosshairs of right-wing media and Rush Limbaugh and others. And so then my dad dies right in the middle of the news cycle uh, of the book. And so I'm there in the sanctuary which I would point out, you know, <laughs> if, you're, if, if you're not familiar with the significance of a sanctuary at a church, you know, the sanctuary 
actually means set apart. I mean, a sanctuary is the place set apart for worship and community with God. So it's inappropriate in any church setting, I think, to be arguing about politics this way, but particularly in a sanctuary, particularly when my dad's in a box over here. And yet, in that moment, a lot of folks thought that it was a good opportunity to have it out with me over politics, to litigate their disagreements with me over Trump and to tell me how wrong I was about politics and to and to really, in some cases, to even question whether I was still a Christian, because how could I still be a Christian if I was, you know, trying to take down Donald Trump? And so anyway, it really was um, a mess and it was pretty surreal. And, you know, I was obviously very hurt and very angry. And then the next day I decided to address that when I gave the eulogy at the funeral and sort of let these people have it a little bit and said, like, really, like Rush Limbaugh, you know, you're quoting Rush Limbaugh to me when my dad's in a casket. Like, what are we doing here? And that actually made things even worse. And um, I guess I'm glad that I did it in some sense, because it really helped me to get in the right frame of mind to realize that this book was something I needed to do. But it was a very painful experience. So, you know, that starts the journey for you that became this book. You decide to at least temporarily leave the world of political journalism and cover the evangelical church. And the rest of the book, essentially, as I see it, is a sort of replay of what you experienced in your father's church, where you you basically talk to one leader after another within the evangelical church who had some experience similar to yours, which is the intrusion of politics and in particularly right-wing politics on the church itself. And you profile one person after another who unravels in part because of this. I think before we get to those individual stories, let's talk a little bit about what we mean by evangelical. Like, what, what does this term mean? And, and does it actually mean anything? Ravi, I'm glad you asked because it's actually where I start early in the book is trying to at least establish the definitions and, and the terms here. And the reality is, 50, 60 years ago, in this country, there was a pretty common understanding of uh, when people would refer to themselves as evangelicals, what they meant by that. Now, the biblical definition here is actually taken from the Greek, uh, evangelos, evangelis, the idea being that that is rooted in the Greek for good news or for gospel, and therefore, if you are an evangelical, you believe not only that the Bible is the inspired word of God, but that you have an obligation, a responsibility to share that word of God with the world, to take that good news and make sure that you proclaim it to all the nations. And that is where we get the verb evangelize, right? So that was, I think, broadly understood in the culture, including among non-believers 50, 60 years ago. And then what happened, as I document in the book, is that you have a slow but steady takeover of the organized evangelical movement. And you have Jerry Falwell Sr., and you have the moral majority, and you have this political opportunism, sensing a moment of cultural and political insecurity, where you're mobilizing millions of these conservative Christians around politics and culture wars. And as a result of that, or I should even say as like an unintended consequence, I suppose, of that, the word evangelical 
starts to be hollowed out of its religious substance and really just becomes a catch-all for conservative Christians. And then even more recently, really for like conservative white Republican Christians. And I would note, it's actually pretty interesting when you look at the data, the social science on this, non-white Christians are far less likely to self-identify as evangelicals. They're much likelier, in other words, to call themselves born-again Christians or just plain old garden variety Christians. They tend to shy away from the term evangelical because of the cultural and political connotations that have become so interwoven into, into the word and into the phraseology, which of course is, I think, hugely problematic because if you go back to this question of the, uh, of the verb, what does it mean to evangelize? It's very hard to evangelize to people who want nothing to do with you because they think that evangelicals are all a bunch of bloodthirsty, culture-warring hypocrites who are politically opportunistic and who actually don't care about following Christ's teachings. They just care about subjugating their enemies in the culture. And it's very hard to evangelize people when that is their perception of what an evangelical is. Yeah, you write evangelical has become an impediment to evangelizing uh, as like sort of one of your core conclusions of this book. And, and throughout the book, you kind of lay out through one story after another what you think some of the issues are. And one of the main critiques that you have is that there's this obsession that current leaders and in, in some cases members because you know you're critical of the leaders but i think what comes across is that also there's a bottom-up problem too which is there's almost like a equivalent of like a moms for liberty type dynamic happening in every church where there's a very vocal group in every church that agitates and even though there might be people with other views they're pressuring pastors in one church after another to either resign or change their positions or wearing them down, issuing investigations. And then you separately outline issues of leadership, like what happened with Falwell and his son and the succession planning there, Southern Baptist Convention. But I think you have a critique that, that, is, that threads through all of them, which is that there's this obsession with worldly identity within the evangelical movement right now. Talk a little bit about what you mean by that. I'm happy to. And I think um, this is probably the most important thing I'll say on the whole podcast. You know, I opened the book in the, uh, the epigraph at the front by sharing the story of Jesus being tempted in the wilderness by Satan. And at one point, Satan takes Jesus up to a high mountain. And in a moment of time, he shows him all the kingdoms of the world and says, I will give you power over all of this and the glory that comes with it, if you will just bow down to me. And Jesus, of course, rebukes him and says, it is written, you shall worship the Lord thy God and him only should you worship. And the point there for us as Christians is to recognize that from the beginning of time, certainly from the beginning of, of, of Jesus's ministry, but even dating much farther back, when you look at the Old Testament traditions around idolatry and the ways in which the Israelites were continually estranging themselves from God because of their pursuit of earthly, political, tribal, national power and the idols that they made out of those things. Jesus is telling us in that moment that, listen, I had the opportunity to rule the world, right? In fact, we learn later in the Gospels that the Jews who had been waiting for a Messiah for centuries and who saw 
their messiah, they, they, they imagined their messiah to be a military ruler, a strong man, a, a political figure who was going to lead a campaign to kill all the Romans and to, to once again free themselves from bondage. And along comes this vagrant preacher from the ghettos of Nazareth who was born in a barn. And he's saying that he has a kingdom that's in a different world. And that in order to be a part of that kingdom, you must disavow everything here, that your identity, your attachments, that the things that you are pursuing in this world must be secondary to your citizenship in the kingdom of God. And this is such a peculiar message. It's a peculiar message 2,000 years later, but it's an especially peculiar message for these people at that moment who are saying, wait a second, if this man is really the Messiah, why is he talking about dying on a cross? Why is he, what, what, this is not the program. This is not how it's supposed to be. So Jesus is tempted in the wilderness and he says, no, I don't want these things. These things are not important. And I think what we have struggled with in Christian history, but particularly in the American Christian tradition, you know, it's funny, Robbie, like I've done missionary work in other countries. I support missionaries in other parts of the world. And there are Christians in China, and in Africa and parts of the Middle East who are, you know, fleeing for their lives right now, who are actually being persecuted. And they're some of the most joyful individuals you'll ever talk to. They have no obsession with political power. They have no attachment to national identity. But there's something about the American experience because this country is amazing in so many ways. And I'm like, I'm proud to be an American. I love this country. But the trappings of being an American, the comforts we have, the material blessings, they become gods to us, and, and we become so infatuated with them, and we become so entitled to them that we feel as though a threat to those things and a threat to our American lifestyle is actually a threat to God himself. And that is not only theologically wrong, but it is deeply destructive to the credibility of the church in this country. And I think you see as a result of that historic numbers of people disaffiliating from Christianity, not wanting to be associated with the church, people who for the last 30 or 40 years on the outside looking in have still had positive perceptions of the church. They hate us now. They hate, particularly they hate evangelicals because they don't trust us. They don't believe us. And so the reason that we really try to home in on this is to underscore the binary between pursuing the kingdom of God and seeking it first and foremost, and having our identity rooted in following Jesus, versus pursuing this power and this glory and this kingdom here that we think can protect us and keep the enemies at bay, but ultimately it is a betrayal of what Jesus calls us to do. And, you know, one of the main turning points that you outline in this book is the rise of Jerry Falwell Sr. and Liberty University. You know, I, when I was in college, I used to debate the Liberty kids. You know, I went to State University of New York and the Liberty kids were on the Northeast sort of tour. And what was interesting to me is, I forget the guy's name, but they had a really good debate coach who used to coach the Republican candidates. I think his name might've been Brett Madden. Uh, you may have come across him in Republican politics. But what I found interesting was the Liberty kids were kind of subversive in many ways when I would meet them on the, the sort of debate trail. And you paint a picture actually of a university today where the students are at odds with the administration. But I want to turn the clock back to the, the creation of liberty and the rise of Falwell and paint a picture for us about 
what Falwell represented in terms of the shift of the evangelical movement? Like what decisions he made that could potentially be interpreted as, you know, focused on his worldly identity and on the politics of the moment? Because I think in many ways, the sort of the Trump moment, which we'll spend some time on, seems like a logical result of some of the decisions that people like him made decades ago. I agree. I mean, look, I think that we are harvesting the seeds planted by Falwell Sr. and by the moral majority 50, 60 years ago. And so it's necessary to have that conversation to understand where this came from and where it might be taking us. So yeah, if you go back to you know the early 1970s, this country at the time is still, you know, 90% plus white, 90% plus Christian. It is still very much the sort of idealized post-World War II America that, uh, that Christians long for today. But there are signs of slippage, right? You have a Supreme Court ruling that bans prayer in public schools. Then you have the Supreme Court ruling legalizing abortion. You have the homosexual movement, the, the sexual revolution sort of running parallel and gaining traction culturally. You have the drug culture suddenly taking over, pornography becoming prevalent. So there's, there, there's this sense of moral panic. And I would add, as I write about in the book, that at some of the fundamentalist Christian schools in the South, they're still segregated and they're not allowing uh, black students to enter the schools. And so you've got fights because the federal government is cracking down on that. And so you've got fundamentalist whites, uh, is particularly in the South, who are who view this as encroaching on their religious freedoms and 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 a belief that the government is cracking down on Christianity, when in fact the government's really just addressing segregation in in schools that um, are receiving federal funds. So all of this is sort of swirling, and Falwell Senior is a really fascinating character because he's a guy who had kind of a, a strange conversion experience, which he himself described in one of his memoirs as being like not terribly emotional, almost kind of transactional in nature. And, and, and Falwell Sr. is a brilliant salesman. He's a brilliant entrepreneur. So first, he builds this church, Thomas Road Baptist, which becomes a massive megachurch in Lynchburg, Virginia. And he pioneers in some sense using television to broadcast sermons around the country and he becomes one of the most watched men in America right he's 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 got his program all over the country and he's raising millions of dollars from it then he builds from there his second phase of building the Falwell empire is he started this little college called Lynchburg Baptist College and and nobody had heard of it nobody went to it but in 1976 Falwell sensing this sort of apocalyptic sky is falling fear that's taking root among a lot of Christians because of the cultural stuff, he decides to rebrand the school and call it Liberty University. And they change the colors to red, white, and blue. And they have a band that starts traveling around the country, you know, doing a sort of God and country road show at state capitals and basically perpetuating, propagating this idea that America is under assault, that Judeo-Christian America is under assault and that they need to fight back against the secular forces of the left in order to restore the country's godly heritage. So now he has this university kind of running parallel to his megachurch. And then a couple of years later, that's when they form the moral majority. And so now he has an explicitly political entity that they can register voters, they can do, you know, uh, turnout, get out the vote, mass mobilization of 
millions of people through direct mail, phone calls, the whole deal. So suddenly, Falwell, in a period of like less than a decade, has built out this machine. And he's got these three key cogs to it. And the lubrication for this machine, this is a weird analogy. I've never used it before, so, so bear with me. But like <laughs> the, 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 the oil that keeps this machine lubricated is fear, right? That is what Falwell Sr. and his people, they feast on the fear and the anxiety and the grievance of these white evangelical Christians around the country, many of whom are just good decent people, but they're a little freaked out, right? And 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 they're like kind of looking around for reassurance, like, hey, like what's happening, right? And, and into that vacuum comes Jerry Falwell Sr. and the moral majority, and they basically say, look, it's us versus them. It's good versus evil. This is a zero-sum battle, and we need to stand up and fight for the soul of this country because this is God's country. We are in covenant with God, this is a divinely blessed nation, and we cannot allow God to be defeated here in America, right? Which, just as an aside, is like a pathetic view into the very pathetic, small theology of some of these people who truly believe this idea that like, well, you know, the maker of heaven and earth, he's really biting his nails over the next election in the <laughs> United States, right? So, but that, that was the sort of language, this end times Armageddon language that Falwell mastered. And what he created and what we saw taking off then into the 80s and certainly then into the 90s and the turn of the century, it created a monster. It, it created this movement where you have tens of millions of evangelicals in this country who began to merge two kingdoms into one. They began to merge two identities into one, believing that really they're not just Christians, they're American Christians. And that fighting for one identity is fighting for the other. And that is, in many ways, at the root of the crisis here. Yeah, and his, you know, Falwell winds up basically receding from the sort of national scene, in part because he said some crazy stuff about 9-11. I think he said something like, we deserved it or something like that, if I remember correctly, because of our, I don't know, because we allow gay people to get married or whatever. I don't remember what he said. But then, so he kind of recedes from the scene his son takes over the university and his son in many ways represents, you know, not just the next phase of liberty, but in many ways, the newest phase of the evangelical church, right? So the son is, embraces Donald Trump, even very early on, you know, invites him to Liberty University. And that prompts a bit of a showdown, not only between Falwell and eventually some of the forces at Liberty, but also Falwell and certain leaders at the Southern Baptist Convention who were critical of him, et cetera. Paint that picture for us. Like what, you know, you, you profile a few people in your book who at that moment, there actually was a public debate within the evangelical church over the meaning of Donald Trump. And one view went out, it seems. Yeah. I mean, look, it's easy to forget now, but when you go back to 2015 and early 2016, evangelicals were Trump's softest supporters. Uh, you know, most of them were divided between Ted Cruz, Marco Rubio, and John Kasich, and earlier in the race, Jeb Bush. Um, Trump did not have very much support among evangelicals in that primary. And it was really interesting that Jerry Falwell Jr. put himself out there and went out on this limb of endorsing Trump 
bringing him to liberty. It was a shocking moment. And in retrospect, it, it shouldn't be all that shocking now that we know what we know. But I think it's important to recognize, you know, you, you alluded to this a moment ago. When Jerry Falwell Sr. was setting up the plan of succession at Liberty, he had two obvious choices. He has Jerry Falwell Jr., his oldest son, who is a businessman and kind of a political culture warrior type, but not a religious thinker, not a theologian, not a pastor. And then he's got his younger son, Jonathan, who is a pastor and who's gone to seminary and who is, uh, you know, a, a really serious religious thinker. And it really speaks volumes that Falwell Sr. would make that decision because there's been a suspicion from the start that Liberty was really not all that invested in like in like the teachings of Jesus, right? That it was really that the teachings of Jesus and Christianity were sort of a, a, a means to an end, that it was a vehicle to help advance a, a political and social agenda. And so now he appoints Jerry Jr., and what you see uh, unfold over the next decade or so with Jerry Jr. at the helm is a school that is succeeding by every tangible, material, earthly metric, right? Enrollment is through the roof. The endowment is bulging. They're building amazing facilities. Like if you've, if you've never been to the campus of Liberty, I can't even exaggerate how beautiful it is. Like it is world-class. It is absolutely a stunning place to visit. And yet, on the inside, it is being hollowed out of its religious substance. It, it is a place that is become spiritually adrift. And Trump sort of steps in at this very unique moment where there's a lot of infighting in the evangelical world over what does it look like uh, at this intersection of, of religion and politics. And it's happening in the Southern Baptist Convention. It's happening at Liberty University. And to your point, the one side ultimately wins out, not because the one side was in love with Trump. In fact, the one side was really deeply skeptical of Trump, but there's a binary nature to politics. And a lot of these people sort of got to a place where they said, well, listen, it's transactional. He's promising us these policy wins that we've been dying for. And so we'll give him our votes. But, you know, that's that's we'll see how it goes. And that transactional relationship has obviously now given way to something else entirely, which is this cult-like devotion to Trump in, in certain quarters of the evangelical world. And I think understanding that evolution, how we got from where we were in 1516 to where we are, you know, seven, eight years later, that's really the million-dollar question for, for a lot of people trying to understand where this movement is today and where we might be headed next. Yeah, and explain to our audience who doesn't who don't swim in the scriptural waters, what the story being told about Trump is within the evangelical leadership and probably down to members today. Like what scripture are people pointing to? What story are they telling about Trump? Because as you said, it started transactional, but now people actually have a religious justification for uh, excusing Trump's behavior. Yeah, there are two things I would point to. Number one, some of the story being told is the um, kind of predictable, age-old, well, look at the Bible, look at how God uses flawed characters to advance his, his purposes. This is just the latest iteration of that. And we should recognize Trump as just another imperfect instrument of God's sovereign plan, right? I think what you see 
and where this really becomes problematic is people like Jerry Falwell Jr., Franklin Graham, another dynastic evangelical uh, heir, and and Mike Huckabee and others. You know, they'll talk about Trump and compare him to like King David, right? And say, well, you know, look at David. He uh, he cheated with Bathsheba, and then he had Uriah sent to the front lines to be killed and, and cover it up. And uh, you know, David wasn't such a Boy Scout himself. Obviously, that's insane because David was described as a man after God's own heart and his brokenness and his repentance uh, and his fear of God form the backbone of the Davidic story arc in in so many ways. Um, But I think the second part that is just as important, arguably, Ravi, more important to help inform the, the justification complex around Trump is this idea that's been percolating in the evangelical world for generations now that one day in this country, it's all going to come to a head, that the forces of the good, God-fearing, Bible-believing Christians are going to come into conflict with the evil, secular, humanist, progressives, whatever you want to call them, who they want to kick God out of America. They want to shut down our churches. They want to indoctrinate our children. They want to ban the Almighty from public life. And one day, it's going to come to a head, and then you'd better be prepared for it, right? That has been the messaging, the sort of end times messaging inside the church for a very long time, which is why I would point out COVID-19 was such a flashpoint, because for a lot of these believers who'd been steeped in that sort of thinking, that sort of rhetoric for decades, suddenly when Gavin Newsom or Gretchen Whitmer comes along and issues a shutdown order and says, you know, your churches have to shut down for some period of time, a lot of them are like, well, here we go. This is it. Like they promised us that this day would come, you know? I think the reason that it's so important to recognize the perception of a threat and this persecution complex that looms so large in the in the Christian uh, worldview here in America is because when throughout history, Christians have been persecuted, ever since the, the, the Constantinian age, where suddenly Christians looked around and realized, hey, having the power of the state on our side is a pretty good thing. Having military and political rulers sticking up for us and fighting our battles for us is pretty cool. So there's been this temptation for 1700 years, really, to constantly turn in times of fear, insecurity, grievance, turn to the sword of the state or, or, you know, to a strong man. And in this case, it's Donald Trump, right? They look to Donald Trump and say, well, he is kind of a rascal and he doesn't he doesn't worship the way that we worship and he's not really one of us but maybe that's a good thing maybe that gives him the freedom to fight in a way that no good christian would fight in other words they've become convinced that the barbarians are at the gates and maybe they need a barbarian to protect them and that that has really helped to sell donald trump to a lot of people who i think deep somewhere in their conscience know that he should not be their representative and that they should not be pledging their allegiance to him in this way, but they're scared and they've become convinced that desperate times call for desperate measures. And so you you, you profile the Jerry Falwell Jr. types, uh, but you also profile one leader after another who basically tried to keep politics out of the church in many ways, or at least uh, keep sort of right-wing politics out of the church and succumb to pressures or or didn't succumb and had to quit or just be quiet or curb their true opinions. We could talk about a lot of them, but I actually think like the most instructive here would be Chris Winans at Cornerstone, the successor to your dad. 
tell us a little bit about what you learned going back to Michigan. If I understand it, you, you moved back to Michigan, but you also spend tremendous time in this book profiling Chris and what happened to him after he succeeded your father. So Chris is a really wonderful, godly, humble guy who uh, he just wants to preach and he wants to serve Jesus. And his great deficiency in the eyes of some is that he is not a conservative Republican. Uh, And in the town where I grew up and in the church that my dad built, being a conservative Republican was almost as much of a litmus test as do you believe in God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, his only son. The doctrinal creeds of Christianity are here, but then right here, it's like, yeah, but who do you vote for? Yeah, I mean, that's that's the ecosystem that Chris stepped into, and to my dad's enormous credit. I mean, I had some political debates with my dad uh, late, in li- late, late in his life where we would have it out over Trump, and it was always loving and respectful, and we had an amazing relationship. But, you know, we didn't see eye to eye on some of this stuff. And to his eternal credit, he had the guts to pick as his successor after more than 25 years at the head of the church, this guy who he knew was kind of a lefty. Like he's not, you know, Chris isn't like some progressive, but he's, you know, like he really has a heart for the poor and for the refugee and for the migrants and he hates guns and like this, like he doesn't, and he thinks Trump is Trump. I mean, you know, he's pretty clear eyed about this stuff. And so he steps into this situation while my dad was still alive thinking, okay, this is going to be a little bit rough, but at least I've got the senior pastor behind me. And, you know, my dad was kind of a larger than life figure at this point. He'd been there forever and it was his church. And then suddenly my dad dies and I deal with all this stuff at the funeral And I take Rush Limbaugh's name in vain during my eulogy. And suddenly I recognize that Chris is going to be in trouble. And he is. Uh, And, you know, over the next few years, after I move my family back to Michigan, uh, following my dad's funeral, Chris and I are talking all the time. And the church is kind of falling apart. He's got people leaving because COVID-19, he decided to shut down the church. Uh, which, you know, how dare you? Don't you have any faith in Jesus? You know, you're a coward, that kind of thing. And then, you know, George Floyd and Black Lives Matter. And Chris has the audacity to pray for our Black brothers and sisters who feel the uh, the weight and the emotion of, of traumatic circumstances like that. What are you, a Marxist? What are you, a radical? You know, that, that kind of stuff. And then Trump, of course, in the backdrop the whole time, he's running for re-election. And then January 6th, and all the QAnon and the conspiracies and the vaccine. And the next thing you know, he's like, as he describes it, he's got an exodus on his hands. All these people are leaving his church, not because he's preaching heresy, not because he's been unfaithful to his wife, not because he's had some like great moral failing that would disqualify him from ministry. It's because he won't stand up at the, at the pulpit and bang on the podium for Trump and for right-wing political causes, right? That's why people are leaving. And so it's interesting because I'm watching this happen as I'm reporting around the country uh, in all these different church settings. And basically everything I'm experiencing elsewhere has all come home to roost in my church, the church that I grew up in. And it's really tragic to see it happening to people that you care about, friends, family members. But also I think it was really instructive to see the way that Chris 
who very nearly quit. I mean, he got pushed to his wits end and almost walked away. But to see how he hung in there, to see how he rebounded, and to see how today he's really, he's turned the tables and he's the one on offense. He's challenging his congregants. He's taking the fight to them saying, hey, where are your idols really? And what kingdom do you belong to? And what is the purpose of the church? To see him emboldened in that way after very nearly giving up and collapsing under the weight of this craziness has been just a huge blessing for me, not just because I love him and because I love my home church, but because I love the church. And I, and, and I think that he's provided a model here for people in a similar situation. Did he get into any trouble due to the publication of your book? Because he's, he's quite candid in your book. Like, have people pulled passages from that and attacked him? Um, the, the short and incomplete answer to that is, I, I think so. I mean, I, I, I think that he's, um, I think he's got, uh, some folks who are going to be upset with him who are, you know, they're not in agreement with his conclusions and they're, they don't think he should have been talking to me anyway, but I don't think it's a big group because I think that the vast majority of the folks who would fit into that camp, they left already. And that was, I think the most interesting thing to me when I went back this past summer, just six months ago or so, I went back for the first time since my dad's funeral. And man, Ravi, I didn't recognize like more than half, like almost I'm looking around me and I didn't recognize very many people there, which is a weird thing because I knew everybody at this church. And that was, it was a little bit scary, actually, like a little bit intimidating at first. And then I just had this like, wave of relief wash over me where I'm like, oh, they're coming because word must have gotten around that this dude wants to preach about Jesus and not about other stuff. And like, there actually is a market for that. It's a, it's a really encouraging thing. So he was very candid with me. And there are, I know, some hard feelings with some people and he's dealing with that. And he knew that that was going to be the case. And he's got a lot of courage for, for being willing to, to take this on. And it's consistent with a guy who's just uh, who, who's, whose integrity, I think, is, is second to none in, in my travels. Well, last question for you. In reading this book, your point of view is unique. Like, I, I don't know what, how else to put it that, you know, you're a political journalist who often steps outside of the stories, lets other people talk, right? You, you'll, you'll be in the story. You've written a lot of pieces where you describe your process and the conversations you have with subjects. But this is a very personal read. Like you, it is, it is in some ways part sort of objective history of a church. But you insert yourself and your opinion into it every step of the way, right? And you are not afraid to offer very barbed opinions about a lot of the people and things that you experienced. This coincides with you moving and at least temporarily walking away from uh, some of the hardcore political journalism. You did. I'm just curious as somebody who's been following your work, what does this mean for you moving forward? Like, do you, do you feel like you're going to do more journalism like this that's like personal to you? Or do you go back to being the sort of, you know, the, the observer, if you will? Boy, that is a question that I have not gotten, but that I've thought about a lot. And I don't know the answer quite yet. Um, I want to be open to the Lord's direction uh, and and how I feel led to best utilize the 
the talents that, that he's given me and, uh, and to try to honor him with my work as best I can. Uh, I, I do believe that journalism is a calling. And I don't think many professions can say that. Obviously, I think, you know, the calling is often used in reference to ministry, to, to the clergy. And I, tr- I certainly believe that's a calling. I think journalism is also a calling because I am in pursuit of truth. And so in some sense, this project became so personal because it was almost the, 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 the merging of my personal identity rooted in Christ which is all about the pursuit of truth. You know, Jesus says, knock and the door will be open to you. I have this painting over here. It's my, my, it was my dad's favorite painting of, of Jesus standing at the door knocking, but there's no knob on the outside, right? It has to be open from the inside. And I truly believe that without going into great detail here, to just to say that there is nothing... I love stories. I love investigating. I love reporting. I love digging. There is nothing in the world more intellectually satisfying and more academically compelling than studying the life of Jesus Christ. I just, I, I, I mean, there, it, nothing even comes close. So that personal calling, I feel, has intersected in this case with the professional calling of seeking truth and holding to account those who abuse authority and who abuse influence and who deceive. And I think much of the undercurrent of the book, as you're alluding to, is walking into these evangelical settings, whether it's a tent revival or a megachurch or just some smaller happening somewhere, and recognizing that you have so-called shepherds, people who are supposed to be looking out for their flock, who are actually wolves, who are preying on their flock, and who are who are abusing them and 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 manipulating them and exploiting them in the worst ways and in the process Ravi doing such a disservice to the beauty and the redeeming power of the gospel and so I don't know if this is a one off for me I'm pretty exhausted you know I I've heard all the horror stories of people who like they speak out about their own tribe and it becomes very painful for them and I'm I'm you know listen I'm dealing with that I'm I'm feeling that But at the same time, and this is going to sound strange, I'm sure, to some people listening, and that's okay. I don't like hide from this. Even as I'm feeling that pain on the one hand, I'm feeling this incredible reassurance and this incredible warmth and this incredible proximity to Jesus that surpasses anything I've ever felt before. And so that is a trade-off I'll take every time. Uh, Whatever contribution I can make to, you know, both the idea of living in a pluralistic society where there there needs to be a healthy relationship between the church and the rest of the secular culture and that's part of the project here but also trying to detoxify the church itself whatever i can do in in pursuit of both of those projects uh, is is what i'm willing to do and and i just you know god willing i'll have the opportunity to to do some of that in the years that come well, Tim, I know your dad uh, is proud of you, looking down on you and this work. Like, I, I, you start the book with him, you dedicate the book to him, and obviously, his influence is everywhere over this book. And so, thank you for giving us some time. This is like such a piece of American history. It is a unique work. I've never seen anything even remotely this in depth about this incredible, important force in American life. So. Thank you so much and good luck out there on the book tour. Everybody go out there and get this book, The Kingdom, The Power, and The Glory by Tim Alberta, wherever you get your books. Thank you, Tim. 
Hey, Robbie, thank you, man. Thank you for being so curious and, uh, and thoughtful on the subject. And I'll look forward to hopefully having more of these conversations with you. Thank you.